What's going on, Keith? How are you doing today, man? Fear, man. Fear is a real thing. Fear is the mind killer. <laughs> so we have this drainage thing in our yard, right, that separates between us and the neighbors, the mm-hmm. drainage grate. And a sinkhole has started to emerge. And then in the backyard, in my neighbor's yard, there's a sinkhole. And there's a hole on the other side of the house that is emerging in the middle of my yard. Now, if you read up on sinkholes, like real ones where houses fall into them and everything, yeah, that's um, what I'm thinking right now. I'm, I'm not like risking my life, but fear because I get to watch those videos online now. Technology exists. I get to go. My house is going to sink, and I you're just spiral by into four to this five sinkholes. Is what you're telling me? Little tiny ones, yeah. And like, is this land all I think about? Is, well, like, what's going is, on? All I'm thinking about is when's my house going to fall? How am I going to save my kids? Like, it's just this weird spiral. Fears are real I just thing, heard, even though I it is not heard, likely that my house is going to fall into a sinkhole. I just heard a phenomenal response to like a, a sixth grader or fifth grader's question: What happens when one black hole? meets another black hole mm-hmm. and cool. i'm curious what happens when one sequel and it's got to do with the stone and the soil and all that stuff and just don't watch sinkhole videos if you see a sinkhole in your yard because fear is real florida or fear is real fear is real sinkholes watch out Welcome back to the More in Common Podcast. I am your co-host, Keith, with my man. Yep, I'm your other host, Rodney, and we are all about inspiring and driving productive human connection by anchoring humanity in compassionate conversation. And look, it's about compassion for us. You're going to hear it multiple times in this conversation, and I'm going to preempt it, and I'm going to let you know that compassion is about meeting people where they are. It's about loving them where they are, regardless, like... Just take out the judgment, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out there. I'm gonna go real big on it. It's about meeting yourself where you are and removing the mm. judgment of yourself. So yeah. we, we, we got this awesome awesome conversation with Eric Keith. Tell us about it. Yeah, we do talk um, to Eric Allen. He is a just man. It's just he's good good. So like we've had a couple guests like this where you just feel good having that conversation and we we navigate his story is the, one of the most important things for him in his public life that we get a chance to dig in on it and have a conversation about it and it's it's pretty wrenching it's pretty intense and he delivers it with such grace and kindness and we talk about that we talk about compassion and we talk about not judging and it's it's just a really good dialogue and discussion and i enjoyed it yeah, I mean, we it's a good example of, of sharing a, a hard and painful story, but sharing it from a place of, of intention and trying to do good for others. And I believe he is doing good in the world. But I love, yeah. love how he shared his wife's feedback on him thinking about sharing his story. And, you know, I think this story will be really good for people who are stuck in believing that their past defines them because Mm. it suggests that that's not the case. And I think Eric makes a very strong case for that, for those questioning their place and questioning if they can do better or do more than where they are right now. 
I think this is the conversation for you. So, yeah. And if you're wondering um, where else you can find us, check us out at moreincommonent.com and uh, you can find all things more in common. So we will leave and you with that. Also, we won't leave you with that. We will say that if you are a part of an organization whose culture isn't exactly where you want it to be, reach out to your boys. We spend a lot of time helping organizations and leaders here see and value all of the people in the in the environment, in the culture so that you can be more happy and more productive. You can break out of echo chambers. We built a four-step more process to help you do it, to help your friends and your companies do it. So hit us up. Let's go listen to Eric Allen. Eric Allen, here we come. I woke up and I just had this desire to make a change. I was so depressed and down and out. And I think that that invite to that church event that I went to was a seed that was planted and that worked in my heart and worked in my mind for the next month. Today, we are with Eric Allen. Eric is truly a man of integrity, work ethic, and an overcomer. Growing up with a complicated childhood and broken home, to raising himself from the age of 14. Once Eric gave his life to Christ, his life completely turned around. He met a beautiful woman and a new chapter was written. Now, Eric and his wife of nearly 15 years and their two children live in northern Idaho and live a humble and blessed life. Together, they are breaking cycles handed down to them of addictions, of depression, abuse, and lies. They're leaving a new legacy for the next generation built on a biblical foundation. Along with being the sole provider for his family, Eric is an entrepreneur and avid MMA fan, which he has created the best MMA podcast of the Northwest, Top Rated MMA. With his companies, Top Rated MMA and The Eric Allen Show, he lifts others up and gives back to the community and veterans through great organizations like Hire Heroes USA. Eric might have been dealt a rough hand, but with the help of his heavenly father and a humble heart, Eric is taking each day as it comes and making it count. So leading up to the show, we have our rapid fire section and we always ask about a difficult conversation tip. And you said be calm, but you really anchored on the idea of quit judging. And if we could all see people where they are, the world would be a better place. Judgment. I think you said, I think you said love them where they're at. Or love them yeah. where they're at, man. Absolutely. How do you manage judgment of others? I really try to push myself to not judge people. You know, I'm a believer in Christ, and I think that Christians have a bad rap for judging people, and it's totally true. And so I want to not be that person. For me, it doesn't matter what your sexual preference is, presidential preference, whether you wear a mask or not, That none of that matters to me. What matters to me is your heart. And I think if we just love people wherever they're at, whatever they're doing in life, you know, they've made a choice to be in that spot. And if we can just love them in that spot, just be kind to people. We don't know what's going on in the background, especially like if we're at a restaurant and a waitress, maybe you're a waiter is having a bad day and we're getting bad service. Man, they could have had some serious stuff going on. I think we just need to love them where they're at. I think the world would just be a better place if we could all just quit judging people. You say you try, try to, what is that effort like? Like, do you catch yourself slipping and how, when you do, do you bring yourself back? Not really. I mean, I would say like, 
the only time that I find myself slipping is is probably just over the last year where like if I this is gonna come across as like if I see somebody driving by themselves with a mask on, for me that's that's hilarious. And I'm like, really? Like th- that's me like ju- that's me judging them, right? Like, why would you do that? Like, I don't know. That's probably the worst that I have in regards to judging people. But I other than that, I really just don't judge people, man. I think you know <laughs> it's such a good observation. You said it's weird. It's not weird, like because we all have our little thing that bothers us about other people and that we just get off on our own soapbox in our head. Like I, I heard that and I'm like, yeah, like that's kind of dumb. Like, why would you do that? But like, but that time that I wasted thinking that I could have been thinking about something like, why did I even have to think that? Like, Hey man, do you, you're in your car. Cool. You're super safe. <laughs> right. Totally. Your car. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but like you sharing that, like that's a dope share. Well, thank you. I mean, maybe they have some medical conditions they have to wear. And I, and I didn't think about that. Right. That's me being judgy, you know? No, yeah, but it's a it's a good observation because it's those little things that we accept, right? Like, and then we'll sit in this room and be like, "Oh, can you believe that person wearing a mask by themselves in their car? Like, what's wrong with them?" And we accept it as a banal judgment, but they all add up. You do more and more and more of those. Next thing you know, it you're judging at a bigger scale, and then you're not giving people space to be themselves. Thus, you're not giving yourself space to have compassion and maybe even establish a connection because to your point, that person could be the greatest person you've ever met in your entire life. And you just started yourself off by judging them just because they wear a mask by themselves in their car, right? Exactly. You mentioned in there the church folk thing, which I think spans all religions and, and really any anything dogmatic. But coming from, I have a background that's similar in like a Christian faith background, whether it's Catholic or non-denominational, or like I have this background myself and I've seen it from both inside of that construct and now outside of it. And when I was in it and I, I got those criticisms from people, I was like, it always made me wonder like why we were like that. Like why are church folk the ones that are the most judgmental when like Christian means to be Christ-like, which he was like the least judgmental person. There was no judgment. Like he was like, no, everybody can roll with me. Poor, blind, sick, diseased, whatever. Like we're all rolling. How did you get to the place with inside the contract? And I'm going to try and tie it to maybe your story because you've got a background. Like you've seen some shit, man. And maybe that lends itself to this, but maybe not. Maybe I'm just being presumptuous. Yeah, I mean, I grew up going to church, right? And my grandma, my dad's mom, she's still alive today. She's going to be 87 this year. Probably the biggest influential person in my life when it comes to just loving on people. And I like to say that I'm the favorite cousin. I'm the second oldest of 19 first cousins. And so I like to say, hey, I'm the favorite, man. You know, because my parents used to literally like take me over to their house, right? Yeah. My, my parents would take me over to my grandma's house ever since I was a kid. And I spent the majority of my childhood at their house uh, hanging with my grandma and grandpa. And she just really spoke life, you know, about loving people and, and things like that. And so I've always been that way. I've never been someone to just like go out and start hating on people or judging people. I've just, that's what she taught me. Just like, Hey, love people where they're at. And here I'm 41 years old and she's 87 and we're still rocking it. That's awesome. That's, I mean, that's such a great example because the alternative example exists. I mean, I, I lived a life where I was surrounded. I, I had a lot of people in my life that inherently judged and, oh, that person needs to not eat so much, right? It's like, oh, that person's not even in our lives. Like, why are we? And it's just little things like that over time that seed, right? And they, they, they become a thing that you have to now manage, 
Whereas I love, like, if you can set the example for your kids, like, don't judge in front of them, they won't judge in the future. This is how we impact generational change, right? For sure. Yep. yep. Or even taking the judgment, like, and sharing that moment that you had. Because I, I think that, I don't know that you have to teach judgment. Our brains compare naturally. Yeah. And so I think taking a moment, it's like, oh, maybe it's not the mass thing, but maybe it's something like it. Or you hear a judgment, it's like, oh, well, man, why did they cut me off? Like getting mad and like saying that out loud and then being like, ah, I wonder if they're late to work or I want like adding the other side to it for them to hear is another way to go about it too. So that leads to the real first question of the conversation that I think might drive a lot of where we go today. And this ties in really nicely. One of the things that happens, and you talked about, you even said it, right? Being Christ-like has come, it comes with its connotations. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is not making assumptions. We quickly make assumptions and then judge based on one thing someone says, right? And Christ is important to you in your life. You pause it there and everybody else knows you, right? Like there is a line of judgments and assumptions that are made just by making that statement. How do you experience Christ? For me, it goes back to in the very first thing that I wake up in the morning, right? So like I said, I get two wins out of the way. So if I open my eyes in the morning, that's a win number one. I'm thanking God right then. But hey, man, I get to live another day. I jump out of bed, I make my bed. That's two wins in 15 seconds. That sets the tone for the day. I get ready, I get in the shower, I come upstairs to my office and I kick on some worship music and I spend time in prayer and meditation, just being thankful and grateful for things that I have and, and opportunities that I have and people that are in my life and podcasting and financially and all of that. and that's how I experienced God. And then, you know, I also experienced God through my relationships with other men that are Christ followers, right? So we have great conversations about how did Christ come into our life? You know, I got rocked by God in 2004. So it wasn't like I was a kid. Like I went to church as a kid, but I walked away for a very, very long time. And then I, I gave my life back to Christ in 2004. So, you know, I mean, I, my experience with God is in my office in the morning when I wake up, I get up here and kick on the worship music, man, and just spend some time. Do you, so I think you said something in there that's, I think, really cool um, when you connect with other men who have experienced it. Do you struggle when other people don't experience God and Christ that way? Not at all. I think everybody has their own experience with how they come to know the Lord or or not. Like, it doesn't, like, for me, it, there's no you know, judgment or, like, no jealousy or, like, hey, man, maybe they just grew up in a church and they've been a Christ follower their whole life. That's amazing. I think that's a feat in itself because that means that they kind of stayed strong mentally and didn't fall into the mishaps that maybe I did, right? But there's everybody has different experiences with the Lord. And, you know, I think I love just hearing stories. I'm fascinated with people's stories. However, they came to know the Christ, or even if they're not a Christ follower, everybody has a story. So I love just hearing people's story. I love that. It reminds me. So I, I am not sure where I fall on the spectrum anymore. I used to say I'm very agnostic and... No, I, I, I honestly, I couldn't tell you if I'm atheist, if I'm agnostic. It depends on the day. It depends on where I am. And Rodney, growing up in a far more religious household and having come from a religious background, that's been such an anchor tenant of our friendship. And it's an anchor tenant of a lot of what we do is just that curiosity of the people who we talk to. Rodney never pushed me or judged me or tried to 
sway me in some direction or another. And I didn't with him either. Right. Like, Hey, cool. It's like, however you live your best life, like live it and you're a great person. So to your point, it's to the heart of the person. So it resonates what you're saying with me a lot. And I just, it's, it's a lot of the experience of our friendship. It's awesome. I think what you're, you know, with you guys being friends for 19 years, I think that's awesome. I have a buddy that I met in first grade still to this day. We're best friends. And 36, 37 years, we've known each other. And I've gone to church. He's gone to church. He's not gone to church. I've not gone to church. I went swayed off the other direction, which we'll get into my story. And he's had a crazy life. He's had a really great life, you know, but I think that's what brings us together is like, it's just our mutual respect. We never push each other for, you know, to be religious or not, or, you know, to be Christian or not. Like, I think that's what holds that friendship together. Yeah, I think, you know, my relationship with God is just how I experience it is just very personal. Like I just, sometimes it's in a small moment in the early morning. Sometimes it's hanging out with my daughter. Sometimes it's being outside and having a nature moment. Like it could be all kinds of different things. And that shifted. It used to be in the outward expression of what I was told it was supposed to be. And now it's just like, no, like it's, it's just in the quiet, in the in the recesses of my mind and spirit, just like a, a peace that I, that I can have with my relationship. And that allows me to make room for people who do and don't believe and believe things that I don't believe in and sure. I, for me to question what I believe. So it's kind of a beautiful little thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you've said this a couple of times, it's big on what you do. Everybody has a story. I mean, I want to go into, you have an eight minute video I want to be right on the nose on this one. You have an eight minute video that gives some of the, the, we'll call them the dark lights, right? They're not really highlights of the story that anybody can go watch on YouTube. We'll link it in the show notes. Help us get into that a little bit further, especially how you, the journey ended up getting you to this place, especially your religious faith and what saved you that moment you quit all the drugs you were doing cold turkey but it was a dark ride for sure long time uh, without played little league my dad would take my best friend dave he'd go throw us in dumpsters behind big stores and say go find treasure that was what, like, what we did on the weekends and there was like a big dump yard out in the desert and my dad would drive us out there and go find people's junk right and you know that's what we did and then this was in washington right yeah this is out in tri-cities washington it's very much a desert area, lots of rattlesnakes, which I'm very scared of because of that. But, you know, like I have a huge fear of snakes, but yeah. So, I mean, did you ever have I, a run in with one? Oh man, all the time. So the back of my house was the, this open field and I had to walk. I started walking to school when I was in first grade and I'd meet Dave. He was halfway there. So I'd meet him at his house and then we'd go up and you'd be walking down on the path and you hear this, you know, I'm like, Oh crap. you like all day, every day, like hustling to get the heck out of there. I hate rattlesnakes, man. <laughs> oh boy. You know, they are the most polite poisonous creature though. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Talk about, talk about not judging. Right. <laughs> At least they tell polite. you they're going to bite you. You have like, a good heart. You have a good heart. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of like what I, what I experienced as a kid. And then I had no idea that my parents were having trouble. And then they got divorced when I was 11 years old. And my mom and my dad both got together with someone pretty much immediately afterwards. And the guy that my mom decided to get together with was this guy who was an alcoholic and he was very physically abusive. So I remember like early on, 
him hitting her, he, I remember like peering through their, their bedroom window because they're arguing. I was outside of the house and I remember him like grabbing the cordless phone and hitting her in the head with it. I mean, just crazy. And my mom would never press charges. Well, then they had a kid together and then they decided, Hey, let's move to Montana. That's a good idea. So they moved to this small town in Montana called Stevensville, Montana, population 1200 people. And they get this five acres, beautiful property right on the Bitterroot River. And the house they rent that's on this property is three bedrooms. It's one for them, one for my brother, who's my half brother, who's literally like eight months old at the time. And then one for my sister. And they're like, Eric, you get to live in the garage. And so there's one half of the garage that had a fireplace on it. And they put this literal plastic tarp up that ran across the entire length of the garage at the foot of my bed. And then the other side of that plastic tarp was where the truck pulled in. And so during the winter, I'd stoke that fire, but it gets negative degrees in Montana. It would get freaking cold out there, man. But that's where I stayed. That was my bedroom. And I, at times I found peace in that because I had set up a TV and I'd play Tecmo Bowl, you know, and things like that as a kid. And But then at night, man, it would get really cold. But the physical abuse that I witnessed continued once we got to the house. Real quick, because I, I knew a lot of your story coming into this and, and watching yeah. the video, but like that part, did it do anything to you that you recognized or recognized then? Or was it just like, I got, I'm just, I'm just surviving. I'm just doing my thing. I think there was definitely times where I recognized that, you know, I got, it was mental abuse, like you said, but it was rejection and just being left out there and not being part of the family. I didn't feel like, but I also like, I didn't want to move to Montana and talk about judging. Like I was judging this guy because he literally beat the crap out of my mom all the time. And right. And so like, I didn't want to do that move. I didn't want to go live in that room. So I was angry. You know, I didn't, I didn't like life. You know, I remember like being at the breakfast table, eating breakfast and I would tell this dude off like, Hey man, you need to quit doing this or quit doing that. Or I disagree with him. And if I did that, I'd get pinched under the table by my mom. Like, Hey, quit doing that. Or I get kicked in the leg underneath the table. I quit doing that. That was constant. Yeah. Cause she didn't want to start the fight, but I was okay with standing up. But I knew that. And at the time now looking back, like he probably did beat her up because I was the one that was talking back. But even still, like not all the time, but I'm saying that there's probably times where they got into arguments where he probably did hit her because, you know, her son's this little jerk and, you know, wanted to talk back. Yeah, it was just crazy, man. You said you came to peace at times with living. Like, what did that look like for a 12-year-old to come to peace with living in the garage and having that experience? I spent a lot of time on the property. And the way the house was yeah. set up was it dropped down to two ponds and we had five acres and there were some deer stands up in the trees. And I'd go sit in those deer stands, man, and, and just hang out for hours. And I'd bring my BB gun with me and I would shoot birds. And that was my thing, man. Like I would go out there and shoot birds or shoot whatever, or shoot targets or on the property. But I spent a lot of time out by myself out on the property. I didn't want to be near the house, didn't want to be by the house. You know, I'd go to the house to do you know, the brush of teeth and maybe eat some food and then go to bed. Like, and I was in charge of making sure the fire in the house was always running. You know, I got burns on my arms all the time because we had one of these big steel fireplace, you know, inserts or whatever. And I had to always keep that thing going. If I let that fire go, oh man, it was like, crap, dude, I got to restart and everyone, all hell is going to break loose, you know? Uh, so I found peace out on the property. Was he ever physically abusive with you? Never. Lots of yelling, but he never was physically. So, you know, I mean, they came home arguing one night. I was 13 years old and it wasn't anything different. They're just arguing. And the way the house was set up is if I'm in the bathroom down the hall to my back is the kitchen, to the pantry, to the garage where I lived. And so they came over arguing. I brushed my teeth. And I now looking back, I'm like, I feel like it was, it was definitely God like speaking to me. I'm like, you got to turn around, man. And so I turned around and I looked down the hallway and I see him on top of my mom. Just boom. 
boom, boom, boom. One shot after the other to her face. And I'm like, dude, I got to get this guy off. And I don't know why it was that moment that I finally had the courage to go do this, but I snuck up behind him and I grabbed a cast iron pan, the heavy duty ones you take camping with you. And I swung as hard as I could and I split the back of his head open. And he turned around and he was like, what the... F-? And as he said that, I took another swing and I split his forehead open. And I hit him so hard that second time, I actually had fallen over. He didn't get knocked out though, but he was bleeding pretty good from his forehead. And he stood up and he was starting to yell. And I remember my mom jumping up and lands like six punches in a row to his face. There's blood splatting on the wall behind him. Cops show up, take him to jail for the night. My mom doesn't press charges. At that point, I was kicked out of the house and I had to go live with friends. I had about three months left of my freshman year of high school. And I literally bounced around from friends' couches to, you know, sleeping on floors of their house for the last three months to finish out my my freshman year of high school. What was the physicality difference between you and him at that age? You're 13. Like he was a tall dude. He was probably six two. And I'm five eleven now. So I probably was, I don't know, five seven, six, something like that at that time. What was your relationship with your sister at the time? We've never really been close. Never were as a kid, even we're four years apart. Um, and she's She's a great mom and she lives down in Texas, but we're, we're never, we were never really like super close. It's not like we call each other on a weekly or monthly basis. It's like call on birthdays and holidays and stuff like that. Did that have anything to like, I'm guessing her relationship with your mother was different seeing as how she got a room like, and you didn't, was, was that part of it at all? Yeah, it was very much different. Yeah. I mean, she grew up in a totally different childhood than I did. I spent a lot of time with my grandma, but my sister was one of those kids that anything that she wanted, she would get. And uh, even into high school, right? Like, I mean, I had to, I had to go buy everything. I had to work myself at an early age, like ten years old, mowing lawns. Anything that I wanted to go get, I had to go and make my own money. Where I was like, oh, well, if she wants something, just give it to her. You know, I remember specifically she had one of those, like, it was almost like the Barbie Corvette, but it was a red Corvette that she had the Hot Wheel ones that you could ride. Like that was a big deal back then, and she got one of those, and I was like. What? I never got my Bigfoot version of that, you know, like one of those things. But yeah, I mean, it was just like she always got whatever she wanted. What did that do to you? I don't know. I mean, it didn't make me angry towards her at all. It was just a different no, lifestyle, her, right? Yeah. And um, I think it just felt like, all right, well, that's just the way it is for right now. Like, I, I didn't think anything different of it until I got older. But then looking back, I'm like, wait a second. We totally had different childhoods, you know? Like my sister, I think, had a pretty decent relationship with my mom's boyfriend for a while. Like when he wasn't yelling, I think they connected pretty well, but I, I don't know that. But uh, I don't remember that situation ever like getting bad. So you end up having, you get kicked out and you have to go live with friends. And at that point, was it after freshman year that you moved to Seattle? So after my freshman year, I moved back to live with my dad in Tri-Cities, Washington. And uh, so I started my sophomore year back in the high school of the school district that I grew up in, right? So it was back back to the town there. And my dad rented a house for him and I to live in. And he would put Hunger Man meals in the freezer, 20 bucks in a cup for my lunch money for the week. He'd make sure that there's milk and cereal in the house. And then he would go stay the night with his girlfriend at the time. And I basically raised myself at that point. I'd see my dad in passing like a couple of times a month. But he basically stayed there every night. So it was my responsibility to make sure that I was catching the bus and getting to school and making sure that I was getting homework done and all of that. And no accountability, right? So started hanging out with guys that are good buddies now. But like at the time, like we made some bad decisions. Like we were smoking pot and we were taking acid and mushrooms in high school. And we, you know, we would go like, we don't want to pay five bucks for a hit of acid, but we can go to the store and buy a $2.50 bottle of 
Robotest and DM and we'd chug that and get hallucinate, you know, start hallucinating, you know, like no accountability or no teaching around money, like how to save it, how to not spend it, you know, like how to spend it, things like that. And so my life at that point was just continue down this dark path ever since I got kicked out of that freshman year. Did you ever have a relationship with your dad? It was very surfacey, very, very, very surfacey. I remember one time he asked me in all of high school, he one time he asked me if I was ever, if I'd ever done drugs. And I was probably stoned and I was like, no, I've never done that. And, um, but uh, yeah, so that was, that was how it was. And, and like in high school, right before I graduated, him and his girlfriend bought a house together. So we moved into this house and I had a room downstairs and it was two weeks after I graduated, I got kicked out because I didn't do the dishes. Like literally it didn't do the dishes, woke up to a note that said, you have 48 hours to get out. You can't comply with house rules. What was your parents have? I, 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 I'm going to assume I'm, it's against the rule that you haven't had too many conversations with them about this. Have you ever tried to reconcile it or given a shit to even try? My relationship with both my parents are very, very surfacey still to this day. Uh, we moved to Idaho on purpose because we got away from my parents and my wife's parents. You know, we got away from them so that no one can just show up at our door and just knock and say, hey, surprise. I mean, they they probably could if they really wanted to, but they know that we're not going to stand for that. What did they think of you? <laughs> probably not much. I don't know what yeah. I did, right? Probably not much. I remember, I mean, my senior year of high school, before I got kicked out, I got arrested for having a bong and I had to go spend the night in jail in Dayton County, a black and white chain gang outfit on, bright orange slippers. And I was scared to death, man, to go to jail. But I had to go. I And... I had to spend one night. I was still in high school. I wrote a note to my dad. Hey, staying at Danny's house, right? I'd never told my dad for like 10 years after I was in jail that I was actually in jail at that night, you know? And, uh, but you know, that's how it was, man. You know, just, uh, I could kind of pretty much do the free range or whatever I wanted to do. And, but once they moved in together, once they bought that house together, oh man, you had to follow the house rules. And if you didn't, it was all over. So then between well, I was just going to say be, between 18 and 21, because that's, I got kicked out two weeks after I graduated. I was 18. So between 18 and 21, I moved 21 times, living on couches, living on friends of friends, second cousins' houses, things like that. I, I couldn't get into a place to live. So you obviously went down a dark path. Yeah. Right. And, and no real, and no real models to pull you out. Nobody to point it out or give a shit or totally. What's your relationship towards I mean, because you even said it, like, you don't seem to have a negative relationship with other men. Yeah, I, I have no negative relationships. That's one of the things that I had to do, right? Like, I had to kind of be a, a quitter. I had to quit being around negative people, quit complaining, quit thinking that I didn't deserve success, quit thinking that I didn't deserve money, quit thinking that I didn't deserve a beautiful wife and a beautiful family and a beautiful kids and stuff like that. And I had to quit quitting. Like I, you know, throughout my life, I've started and quit a bunch of stuff. And so I like to say, Hey, I had to be a quitter and had to quit all that stuff. And so, yeah, I don't allow negativity into my life anymore. Okay. So now I want to get to that place. So let's, let's get to that pivot point when you went to church because your now wife introduced you to her said, come to this thing. Well, you know, like I said, I moved 21 times by the time I was between 18 and 21. I, I moved, made the move to Seattle. I had $100 in my pocket and I just slept on a bunch of floors for a while until I could get a job. And I landed a job for Universal Records, which was my dream job. I was like, I don't know how to play anything, but I, I wanted to be involved in music somehow. And I was the mailroom guy. Didn't get paid for six months. 
And um, they said I needed to take an internship class through the college. And I went and paid $300 for an internship course. And I never showed up, but I took that receipt to the universal records and said, look, I took an internship class and then I got the job. So I was there for six months, no pay. And the problem was, is that did not, it just fed into my addictions because I was able to go to two to three concerts a week, open tab. And, you know, there's this two year span where I was managing a band and I was with Universal Records and probably went to 175 concerts over that two years. At the end of my one year with Universal Records, I got laid off. It was during Napster days and I was so bummed, but I was working at night at Starbucks. So I was depressed and I was drinking. So I'd get off work. I'd go to Safeway, buy, buy my six pack of beer, go to Hollywood Video, rent me a movie and pass myself out every single night. That was my routine, especially once I got out of the music business. And one night at Starbucks, this girl had walked in, pretty hot looking. And I was like, heck yeah. You know, but I'm very shy. Like, I don't want to go up and talk to her or anything like that. But she started this conversation, said, Hey, we've got this cool college age event to this church. Would you be interested in ever coming down? And me being depressed, having no friends, living in this ghetto apartment. I actually lived across the street from where Jimi Hendrix is buried, you know, just like this ghetto area of Renton, Washington. And so I was like, yeah, I'll go. I'll go check it out. And so I go down there and there's all these weird coincidences. I ended up knowing people from the other side of the state. Like, dude, I went to high school with you. Man, I remember you from my brief stint at college. Like, just this weird connection. And then about a month later, it was Easter weekend and I was managing the band. We went out and played a show. And I woke up on Easter morning and surrounded by like probably 15 guys in my buddy's basement. I woke up early and I felt in that moment, God just said, man, you're done. And I quit cold turkey, drugs, drinking cigarettes, everything right there. And I gave my life to Christ. And I called that girl up and I was like, hey, I got her voicemail. Hey, happy Easter. Maybe I'll see you at the store. And funny thing is about a month later, we're dating. A year later, we're married. And this year, we celebrated 16 years of being married. And this kind of goes back to that, that question of how you experience Christ. Like in that moment, what was that experience? I woke up and I just had this desire to make a change. I was so depressed and down and out. And I think that that invite to that church event that I went to was a seed that was planted and that worked in my heart and worked in my mind for the next month, right? And maybe it was a coincidence that on Easter that it was Easter weekend, but I wasn't out of church, but it was I had to do it on my own right? Like, I feel like I, that was a journey that I had to go on. I had a journey that I had to make that choice myself. Cause I, before, like in the earlier, my early late teens, I guess I had given my life to Christ, but it was because I was dating a girl who was a Christian at the time and but it didn't mean anything. But I feel like this journey, that journey was something I had to do on my own. And I later on talked about the pastor. He had told me about this, you know, he, he kind of sees God have us on these almost like puppet strings. And when we sin, he cuts the string and he reties it and brings us a little bit closer. And I felt like in that moment, I was finally, my strings were done. I was in the hands of God. And I just said, all right, man, you take it all. It's all you, God. And I have never had to, never struggled to go back to drugs or drinking or anything like that. So it was kind of a knowing or was it more of a knowing or feeling or both? I think it was both, right? I mean, I like woke up just feeling like, man, I need to make a change. But then in the same time, I'm feeling God say, man, are you ready to make a change or are you just like saying that? Because if you're ready, then let's do it right now. And that's what I ended up doing was I, like, like I said, everyone's passed out. I just closed my eyes and just started praying, God, I'm done. Whatever you want me to do, whatever you need me to do, let's make a change. I'm ready to make that change and let's make that happen. Was that cold turkey? Was it difficult or was it, was there temptation like beyond, I'm sure there's temptation because you're still friends with those 
folks, but like from a physical craving, mental craving standpoint, like how did you deal with that period as you moved through or was it that simple for you? It was that simple for me. And what I had to do is I had to call my buddies and I said, hey, for myself, I've got to take a break. I can't do this anymore. I'm going down a bad path that I can't, I don't want to continue to go down. I need to take a break from going to the bars and hanging out and things like that. And they understood that. They're like, dude, get better. Get you be you. And I'm still friends with those guys today. But I had to take about a six month break where I wasn't going to the bars, wasn't hanging out with them. And what I did was I replaced that time with hanging out with pastors, hanging out with people who loved Christ, people who could speak life into me and say, man, your past does not define your future. Like you're better than the past that you lived in. And I started submerging myself in books like crazy. I was like, reading books all the time. I'd never really read books, but I started soaking books up as much as I could. I was reading like probably one to two books a week and just soaking up, man, how to like mindset and just staying like following Christ and things like that. And man, it was just, it. I did that for probably 35, 40 days straight of just pounding books and and soaking up as much information as I could. So you, to your point about quitting the people that the negative, you actually just reached out and you're like, Hey, I'm putting this on pause, which isn't, I don't know that I hear a lot of people talk about that, but that's like, and then they responded in kind, which is amazing. Cause then they were like, yo, like take the space, which I think it sounds like gave the space for you, you to still have a relationship with them versus them being like, nah, you think you're too good for us. And totally. I think there's a, it's an interesting human approach to, you know, there, there are often, you know, we do a lot of mindset things and mindfulness and we read and all that. And, you know, you hear a lot of people say, you got to cut out the bad in your life. You got to cut out the bad in your life. You got to cut out the bad in your life. And there is a, there is a truth to that. And it's really hard. And that approach to say, Hey, I just need a break. I need to go take care of some things. I need to do things. It goes back to that word judgment. Like, I'm not judging you for being you. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I just need a break. Like, I just need to figure it out. And then when you come to that space of actualization, like you, you feel this sense of comfort and confidence and you are being guided by the forces that guide you and you feel completely aligned to it and you go back to those people, that's when you can decide whether they're cut out or not, right? Like you don't have to, and, and you can be, and it's much easier to make the decision at that point versus, you know, letting it drag you along, preventing you from advancing simply because you're resisting the idea of cutting out. Just take a break. It's like, Hey, I need some space. I got to go do me for a minute. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I like that. I'm wondering, uh, now that you're a parent and a husband, been a husband for 16 years, are you able to still do that? Even with, with people that are good for your life, like when you need time, are you able to, to do that same thing still? Totally. Yeah. I would say that the majority of people that I'm close well, to not are... the same uh, thing. Not like, wife, I need six months, but... Yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I need six yeah, minutes. You're, you're giving me too much <laughs> negative energy, wife. I got to go. <laughs> you watch the kids. <laughs> right. I think that goes into my, my morning routine. For me, that's my time to have my time. Like, that's where I can refresh, recharge. I wake up at 4 a.m. six days a week. And people are like, dude, that's crazy. Why do you want to wake up at 4 a.m.? It's because my desire to be successful in life, in marriage, and business is bigger than my desire to sleep. And so I get up at 4 a.m. because I know that everyone else is sleeping and I can spend time on me. I can grow me 
And then I have to start my regular job at eight o'clock on this computer. But that time in the morning for me is so important. And I had to have those non-negotiables like, hey, if there's a birthday party that's going to go on till midnight, man, I can't go because I get it, I'm going to get up at 4 a.m. the next day and I can't do that. I'm usually passed out by about 9.30, usually at the latest. But it, during the week, 9.30, I tell my wife, I'm like, look, Saturday night is all yours. Uh, let's, I'm going to stay up till at least 10. <laughs> that's, that's my goal because I, I don't set an alarm on Friday or Sunday mornings. I do wake up between 4.30 and 5 on Sunday typically, but I do not set an alarm on Sundays. There is a, a scent to that sentiment. I wake up because I value it over sleep. That misses the other half of that equation. And Rodney and I recently went through this training and they did, there's a mindset component to this program that we're in. And they introduce this piece that I had never heard before. And so I get up at five o'clock, probably five days a week, trying to really anchor on it for that very reason. Like that hour between five and seven, those two hours, no matter what I'm doing, it's my time. So I'll work out, I meditate, but that's, that's about me and having that space and time. So I'm never later in the day going, boy, I need time for myself. It's glorious. That space, that time. And, and just embracing it for what it is. Like, and, and really anchoring on that mindset. But the thing that they said in this is, so I'm going to wake up at five o'clock every day and here's my intention and here's why. Okay, this is something I've been doing. Nothing new there. They said, but I'm also going to go to bed between nine and 10 o'clock every night because I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. every day. And we often miss that half of the equation. We think we're part of that 3%. Like when it gets mentioned, it's like, are you part of that 3% that only needs three hours of sleep? Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who would work until midnight and then wake up at 4am and start it all over again. Right? Like none of us are like that. Like we actually need sleep. So going to bed earlier matters, right? To be more specific, if you like, if you get on the YouTubes and you're following the Jockos and the ETs and the Tony Robbins, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, get up early, get up early. They also go to bed. Like, Tom Bilyeu goes to bed at like seven o'clock. That's why he's up at three. Like you, you can't just go to bed at midnight and then wake up at three. You will physically cause harm. Tom Brady is a great example. Most like JJ Watts, another one, you know, they're the first ones in the building and it's four 30 in the morning. Yeah. Like they're tucked in at eight, right? Yeah, like totally, they're right? trying to get eight hours of sleep. Like they got to do it. Well, and I think, yeah. Because the, there's the whole culture of uh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, and I subscribe to it for a very long time. And I think there are moments where extraordinary things are required. Like, I got to be up late. I got to be up early. But that's like the extraordinary. Like, I, I, on a normal basis, like taking care of sleep is going to be important because if you don't, you will put yourself in the grave early. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't want to add anything. I mean, I think just one thing that I wanted to throw out there is like I had mentioned earlier, like I didn't have any guidance around money. And so when I was 21 years old, I was $28,000 in debt and I had to file bankruptcy. I was borrowing money from cash advance to pay money tree. And then I was borrowing money from money tree to pay cash advance back and forth. And finally I just gave up and I literally had to have them come pick up my car, you know? So again, your past doesn't define your future. If you've gone through bankruptcy, if you've been to jail, whatnot, like you can change at any point and you just have to make that decision and then stick with it and be consistent. How old were you when this all happened? I think I missed that time frame. You would have been 22 when this revelation happened for you? Um, I was 24 when I gave my life 24. Christ. Yep. Okay. 24. Married 14 years. 16. You're married 16 now. Married yeah, yeah. 14 years and you decided to share your story. 
Yes. Yep. Yep. I was 39 years old before I shared my story publicly. So 41 right now. What was that triggering event? Why did you decide to share your story? I heard a guy named Pete Vargas talk online about sharing your story. And he talked about getting this TEDx talk and he had three minutes to talk and he was sweating bullets and he was just talking about how to share your story. And I, I don't know why it was just that right time. I came across him and I was like, all right, it's time to do it. Let's do it. You know? So, so that's how I ended up sharing my story. That was it. That was it. Like, did you have any expectations of it or were you just like, I'm just going to put it out there into the universe, see what happens. I didn't have any expectations. I did run it by my wife before I publicly released it because uh, for me, I'm like, all right, I'm just balls to the wall. Let's make this happen. Let's do it. And I'm like, she's the one that's the thinker. <laughs> she's way smarter than me. And, you know, I'm married up. So she, like, I was like, hey, here's this video I put together. Do you think that I can put this out? And I think there was a little bit of fear, like, of judgment that people will judge me based off my story. Right. And she's like, you will have people judge you off this. You will have maybe family members go, why are you sharing that story? That's that's personal, right? But she said, and that's fine. Let them think that. But I want you to be comfortable with that. And so that's when I said, all right, let's just do it. That's awesome advice. So obviously, I mean, you mentioned it. You, you have a surface relationship with your parent and you expose some seriously heavy baggage from their lives, right? Now, it's that constant... It's something I think about a lot, especially having done this podcast, how much I share. I mean, even earlier in this podcast, when I was talking about growing up with judgment in my life, like I was super reluctant to actually say that in the moment, right? What's that path? What's that journey been like with the family since you exposed it? And how much has it impacted you? It's funny because I don't know that they've ever actually listened to my story. As much as it's on YouTube, I don't know that they ever have. They know that I'm a guest on podcasts. That's a goal of mine to be on 100 podcasts in 2021. And they know that that's that I do podcasting. And they listen to my show every once in a while. Here, like, oh, that was a good show. Or I listen to that fighter. Or I listen to that guy. And you know, things like that, right? But I don't know that they've ever actually listened to a show that I've been a guest on. Maybe they have. Maybe they haven't. But I'm okay with it. If they, they hear the truth, then they're like, oh, shit. All right, well. Because you went into it with that that dope advice, and it was it was for you, not for them. So, I mean, it's your it's your story, not theirs, right? Like you're not telling your mom's story; you're telling your story. And at the end of the day, there's you kind of have to reconcile whether or not they would conflate the two. But that's not work you have to do, right? And yeah. they have their own story, right? They have their own side of it that they saw, right? Or or maybe things that happened to them that caused I don't know, right? But that's not my job to speak out about, or you know, my job is just to share my story. So I've been waiting to ask this question because I wanted to kind of get through, I wanted to work through the journey a little bit, but now you look back over the last 41 years and you are very positive, jovial person with a great outlook. How hard has it been to maintain that at times? Like, do you ever, like what has been the impact of that? The depth of the darkness been on where you are today? I think I struggled with it for a while. Even after I gave my life to Christ, I'd have these moments, right? Where I'm like, wow, I'm kind of ashamed of that. I'm kind of embarrassed of that, right? But I will say this, once I shared my story, it was a huge weight off my shoulders. And I started getting good feedback from people like, man, I can't believe you went through that. 
like, dude, I have a similar story. Man, that's awesome. I can't, I mean, thank you for sharing that, right? I started getting encouragement, uh, encouragement from people, right? And ever since then, you know, yeah, the majority of my my marriage has been awesome. And yeah, we argue, yeah, we fight. And my kids see that. But like, and I think that there was things that I probably brought from my past in my marriage at first, but we had to work on that. But you know, like, I think there's just a a point where I had to say, you know what? It's off my plate. I literally said, hey, here's the story. And it was huge weight off my shoulders. And so I think just being happy and being really fighting for a new legacy for my kids. My wife and I, we never will have that divorce. We knew coming into this that we were not going to bring divorce, abuse, addiction, rejection into this marriage. And so we've had to work on that. And that's kind of the mindset is like, hey, man, don't judge people. We just love each other. We're going to leave a new legacy for our kids. They're going to experience a childhood that neither of us experienced. And we're going to leave this new legacy, man. To build on what Keith said, I mean, even when you talk about your parents, for instance, like I don't pick up any hate or hostility, like nothing negative. I just don't, it just is what it is. And, and there's like, a, there's a strength. Like, even though that my story's not like that, I mean, there's some similarities in there, but like our story is different. Like what I take from it is just like this calm strength. And like, it's possible to go through some darkness and still be okay. And it's dope that you're able to share it. I don't think it's for everybody to share their stories and that's okay. I think it is for some people, the people that can handle it is for them to share it for everybody else to take something from it. So appreciate you for that. Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. You said two things. Well, you said one thing twice. You talked about bringing some of your baggage into your marriage. You had to work on that. And then you said not bringing that to your parenting. You had to work on that. What did that, both like all of that, right? What did that, what has that work looked like for you? I think I came into the marriage being defensive, right? Because I was always blamed for everything. And so anytime something happened in the mirror, it's like, oh, crap, that was my fault. Or, you know, I, I but I mean, I wouldn't say that. I would be more like, oh, no, that wasn't me. Or I didn't do that. Like, And it caused a lot of this you know, bitterness. Not bitterness. I would say just arguments between my wife and I. Like In the early marriage years, we're like, you know, I, I was really defensive about stuff. And as like I said, we have an amazing relationship now. But yeah, we still argue. We still fight. And we make up and we kiss in the kitchen. My kids go, ooh, right? Like, But we knew that we were getting married, that we were going to go through it. When we said, I do, through the hard times and the great times, we meant it and we're going to stick with that forever. And, but like you said, like I came into the marriage having this baggage of like being defensive, you know, that that's what I brought into the marriage. I came in my, and my wife, she comes from a broken family too. So we both knew exactly what we did not want to have in a marriage, but we both kind of came in with these weird concepts of marriage and we had to work through that. We've had one other guest say ha- having a clear concept of what they did not want. Oh no. That wasn't another guest. That was a conversation I had with a friend. Uh, having a clear concept of, but both of you having that and being on the same page, that's amazing. For others exploring their relationships, how, like any recommendations for what worked or what didn't work for you two as you were stumbling through that? We got to know each other for five years before we had kids. And that was the greatest thing we ever did. Like we went on vacations. We went down to Mexico and we built houses for people that don't have houses. We did two of those trips together, you know? So we got to experience like going to a third world country where people are living on dirt. And then I'm not a tool person, which is interesting. I, I 
I'm not a tool I, a person. I don't own tools. All the tools in the house is owned by my wife. I, I'm the, the techie guy. We say her tools, his tech. She grew up in a shop. Her grandfather was one of the coolest guys ever. He was a shop teacher for 35 years. He taught her everything. I grew up, my dad said, pay people to do everything. So I never learned how to change a tire, change brakes, do any of that. I never had tools. And we got married. It was like, she's like, you don't have tools. You know how to do that. Like, you know, but then like getting to know her, her grandfather who's, who's since passed, like one of the greatest guys ever. He taught me how to change brakes. He taught me how to change spark plugs and work on cars and stuff like that. And I'm still not very good at that. My wife is definitely the better one, but experience life together before you have kids and especially in your early married years. And I think that will help grow that. And you guys will get through the kind of the, the muck and then kids come in, it's a whole different game and there's still some muck, but you can get through that first five years and just really building that foundation, I think. From your earlier thing, uh, I think acknowledging the mess from the house that you came from is helpful because we can't help it. We bring that into, and I didn't realize this till way later in my, my marriage, but like we bring our childhood homes into our new home because that's what we know. That's what we revert to just supernaturally, not super, not supernatural, like, but super (laughs) naturally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Fun. Um, But yeah, a fun fact too is I was just gonna say a fun fact is my wife and I were actually both born at exactly the same minute documented on a birth of gate at 141 PM, different years, different days, but we're both born at exactly 141 PM. Beautiful thing. There's a reality of all of our existence that we always become the parent, our, our parents, the things that we complain about to Rodney's point to it. You're, you're bringing that baggage with you. And if you don't assess it and you don't evaluate it. And I did some work after my daughter turned two, which is the year, how old I was when my parents split. And there was a lot of stuff that I hadn't reconciled because you know, some of the things, like, why would you, right? Like, some of it, it, it's not so traumatic that you're right. It's like, okay, your parents split it too. But there's emotional baggage that comes up. And all of a sudden, I'm projecting this onto my two-year-old, right? And into the family and into the environment. How did you two work through that so you don't repeat past mistakes of that family lineage and that baggage? You, you've said it and you, you care about not, it, making sure they don't have a life you lived. Yeah. How have you managed that? For us, it's it's about Christ. It's about having a shared faith in Christ. You know, for us, we we know that that's against what we believe in. We we do not believe in getting a divorce. That's just for us, right? Like we don't care if other people are going to go do it. We know that that's a major thing that happens in the U.S. But for us personally, we had to say, you know what? We're building this marriage on a biblical foundation, and our kids are going to see us argue. They're going to see us fight. And it's interesting because my daughter had to do this thing for her school that was like showing generations of past grandparents. And you had to like show on there, like, are they still married? Are they passed away or not? What not? Right. So we, we have all these grandparents and our grandparents were all married for 40, 50 years, you know? And then you go to our parents, it's like divorce, 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 divorce. And then we go to us and it's like, we're married. And my daughter's like, why, why did they get a divorce? You know? And we're like, we don't know, but there was this generation of my parents and my wife's parents that they've probably had five or six divorces between the two or four people, right? And then, but above them, man, everyone's married for 50, 60 years. And so we decided, hey, we're going to change this thing and we're not going to allow that 
broken divorce to come into our life. And so it's tough, but we have those real conversations. Our kids know what divorce is. They know what it's like to go through, you know, they hear us talk. You know, I don't shy away from that. Like there's some details that I keep away from my kids at a younger age right now, but they know that I went through the stuff and they know that they're never going to have to experience that with our marriage. As you lay that lineage out, I start thinking across Keith's family and my family and my friends' families. This divorce thing is very boomerish. Why aren't we talking about that? Why aren't we talking about these boomers and divorce? There's a, a generational transition of social constraint versus independence to now social contract. It makes me think, and this is a long ramble, so I'll try and cut it down, but I think and then you can you can talking, go to the final question on the I ramble. will. Yeah. What yeah. you're both talking about is just like a priority and then like a transparency. Like you haven't shared everything with you. Like they're within reason, like a transparency with your partner and with your children. And that's gonna help your children understand that love isn't just a it's not just a feeling, it's not just a Hollywood story that ends beautifully. It's like after that, like they wake up the next morning and like life, life happens. Like all of that is what love is. And, you know, I, I just think of my marriage, like there's just, there are a lot of things that I think I just maybe didn't know or wasn't aware of that, you know, some, some upfront conversations could have helped me avoid and could help me get through um, that having these, these kinds of things will will absolutely do. So, I, man, I just appreciate you being. Um, like I said, I already said I appreciate you. Appreciate your story, and you have a great soul, man. Like it just feels good to talk to you. Like I just, it just feels good talking to you, man. I appreciate that. This is a great conversation, man. I think I think the same for you guys, man. I, I love the the conversation, the direction you guys have gone, and man, it's so good. 